Today's scripture reading will be from 2 Samuel 2, verses 8 to 11. In our Pew Bibles, this is on page 255. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ish-bosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. morning. Into 2 Samuel chapter 2. Forgot to change the font on my iPad. I think I'm younger than I am. Um, It's a very small print. But... uh, If you can just kind of close your eyes and just imagine for a second, you've recently been promoted and you're going to start this transition into this new executive role that you have. And your utilities have been knocked out the night before and you wake up because your cell phone alarm wakes you up and then you find that there's just no electricity to turn anything on in your entire house. There's no gas for the stove so you don't have a a way to cook breakfast and there's no water because the utility company is just trying to figure out what went wrong so there's no shower and then your kids are waking up for school but there's nothing to feed them for breakfast and they start fighting because they're frustrated because there's no power and there's no water and so you do the best you can to get your kids ready for school and get yourself ready for this new huge role that you have and when you get out to your car you find out that you have this flat and just things are just not going as you had hoped and planned even. And so if you can just get the sense of the angst and the frustration and all that negative feeling that you have, this is kind of what we have here in Second Samuel chapter 2. And it goes all the way until Second Samuel chapter 5. Like it, it's just ongoing that all these issues that David runs into to be anointed king. And it's just not as easy of a transition, and things just aren't working out for him, even though he's supposed to be God's chosen king. Saul's no longer the king. David is the king as he's God's chosen one. And we don't read of David's anointing as the king of Israel until you get into chapter 5. And so just from chapter 2 all the way through, it's just this one thing after another that it's not happening. So let's just take a look at the first four verses first. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the man of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. So this is where Judah anointed David king over Judah, but as king of Israel, this doesn't happen until chapter 5. So what's, what's going on here? 
Well, it's funny how, how God works because he often does this, that God often uses what is uncertain or hidden or obscure, doubtful, mysterious, and he uses those ways to bring about his kingdom, those ways to bring about the kingdom of heaven. Now take a look at Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 31, where Jesus taught this parable. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now, this parable isn't talking about the growth of the kingdom. It's God's kingdom, so there's nothing to grow into. It's already his so, so how is it like a mustard seed? It's like a mustard seed because when someone first discovers it or realizes it, it's an obscure thing. It's so small. It's, it's kind of hidden. When one initially recognizes the kingdom of heaven, it doesn't seem all that impressive. It's like this grain of a mustard seed. It doesn't seem like very much. And you look at Jesus as an example. When the Son of God comes to heaven, how does he arrive? He arrives in obscurity. It's this little town of Bethlehem. And he's born into a poor family. And this mother is now of ill repute. And he's first looked at as just this little mustard seed. And one, when, when you finally realize who he is, and then it kind of blooms. But it, it's just this average guy who is from this small town, who wasn't educated in the best schools, and, and his first followers even, if you, if you follow them, they're not the top students out of Jerusalem. They're just these average people out of the Sea of Galilee. Not even scholars, not even students. And so what makes the kingdom of heaven is that the king is actually there. And therefore that makes it the kingdom. But here with Jesus, it's just not all that impressive. You look at it, and it's still the kingdom, but it's not that impressive. And it's the same thing with David here in 2 Samuel chapter 2. Not impressive at all, but it's still the kingdom because King David is there. And it doesn't look like much initially because it's just this one tribe. It's the tribe of Judah, and this is how David began. And so when you're looking at it, it's like, it's not that great. It's not that impressive. And then you look at how David begins this whole journey. It says, David inquired of the Lord. That David prayed. David sought God. And then they're off to Hebron. And so if you can imagine this group heading off to Hebron. And verse 2 informs us that David brings his entire household. Verse 3 informs us that David brought the men of Ziklag. There's 600 men and their households. So it's actually quite a large group that is heading to Hebron which also left quite an impact on Ziklag because they're leaving this town to go to another one. And so it loses this population of a few thousand people in this short period of time, and it's moving to Hebron. Now, why Hebron? Well, Hebron is one of the main cities in Judah, if not the main city of Judah. Now, today you can still go to Hebron. It's in the Palestinian territory. It's about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. It's in the Judean mountains. And most people who go visit Israel today actually do not visit Hebron. Uh, they say it's so-called dangerous or, you know, what, whatever excuses that they have. We do take groups to Hebron. Um, it's a fascinating city. We don't take all groups. It just kind of depends on our group that when we go. But it's this 
city that has these really, really deep covenant roots. And it's a holy city to Judaism. It's a holy city to Islam. It's where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their wives, Sarah, uh, Rebecca, Leah, they're all buried there, according to Genesis 23, 25, 49, and 50. And if, if we ever get a chance to visit there again, there are these places that, that the Jews and Muslims believe their bodies are. are. They, they, they have these tombs. I don't know if their actual bodies are there, but I know that they're buried in Hebron somewhere. But people are always finding ways to make money, right? So anyway... Israel's patriarchy, Israel's matriarchy began there in Hebron. So this is a very, very significant city. And it's in Hebron that David is anointed king over the house of Judah. Verse 4, the latter part. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Now you notice that it's just one tribe that recognizes David as king. It's, It's only one. So back to that mustard seed. It's, it's not that impressive. And if you're an outsider looking in, you're just kind of wondering about this uncertainty and doubtful at the appearance of this. You're the king, but it's only one tribe. It's only Judah. And so not a very promising start when, when we're looking at it from the outside, when we're looking at it from a world's perspective, but very significant and that God is in this. And that this is all that David needs, is that God is in this. And even though everything around him doesn't look very promising, he holds to the promise of God. It is the kingdom because the king is in it. And so much like today, the kingdom is still like a mustard seed in that it's still not very impressive to the world. And the world does not recognize Jesus as king. We just finished Ephesians a couple of weeks ago, and and we we know this from Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 19. According to the works of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul wrote to the Ephesians that Jesus Christ is king, and we know that. The rest of the world doesn't. There's still this obscurity about Christ's kingship. And we know that Jesus is seated in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. But it's hidden from the rest of the world. It is doubted by many. And so the kingdom of God is still like a grain of mustard seed. And today we're still in a place like David in Hebron. But this is often how God works. God usually starts his works in obscurity. The size of a mustard seed. He usually starts small. And God seems to be drawn to the unimpressive, the weak, the insignificant. And you look at David's life and you look at Jesus' life. They are not impressive starts at all. And so this is something for us to keep in mind because we might find the things that we do as unfulfilling, 
or mundane or just questioning why you're doing what you're doing. And maybe it's because you're serving in this Hebron-like manner where God is just starting small. Doesn't seem all that grand what you're doing, but it's still being done in the kingdom where the king is. And so there's, there's a lot of service to the kingdom that is, is just like this. Actually, most of what we do is just like this. Because most of what we do for the kingdom is hidden. It's obscure, right? Like all the stuff that we do. Who actually knows what you and I do for the kingdom? It's very few people. Even in my role as a pastor, like who outside of our church knows even what happens? Like it's so small. It's just like a mustard seed. And sometimes we want recognition more than recognizing we're serving the true reigning king who himself is reigning in hiddenness, in obscurity. When they told David it was the man of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul. Now what's this about? Well, Jabesh Gilead is about 20 miles southeast of the Sea of Galilee. And you have to look back in 1 Samuel 31 where the Philistines devastated Israel on Mount Gilboa. Then they took those corpses of Saul and Jonathan and Saul's other dead sons to a city called Bethshan. And Bethshan is west of the Jordan River, close to Mount Gilboa, and their dead bodies were just hung, nailed to the walls of Bethshan. You can go to Bethshan today, the, the ruins are there, and it's been excavated. There are walls that have been excavated in that city, and you can picture that, that Saul being nailed, hung, and, and his son's bodies just pinned on those walls for everyone to see them kind of rot. And so you can picture that there. And, and so back to these men of Jabesh Gilead. Jabesh Gilead is about 10 miles away from Bethshan. And these men heard what the Philistines did to Saul and his son. So they left Bethshan for this 20-mile round trip to take those rotting bodies down the walls in the evening. And they brought those decomposing corpses back to Jabesh Gilead to give Saul and his sons a proper burial. And so this is what David hears about in verse 4. Now, why did those men from Jabesh Gilead risk their own lives to go do this? Saul's already dead. Why risk your lives to take down these already dead bodies from these walls of Bethshan? And so we have to go back to 1 Samuel 11 to see why. These guys feel indebted to Saul because of this. Verse 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On the condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people? They are weeping. 
So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Skip down to verse 9. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. Saul saved them. Saul saved the men of Jabesh. And so they never forgot what Saul did for them. And so they felt this indebtedness to him. And, and with Saul now dead, they would be, they wanted to give this parting gift, this parting gift of gratitude to Saul. Now back to 2 Samuel, starting in verse 5, chapter 2. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord your show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. David recognizes this. David recognizes, hey, uh, I'm also a diplomat. I'm a king. I need to make political alliances. And so I'm going to make this offer to the people of Jabesh Gilead to, to have this political alliance to me. Now, you put yourself in the perspective of those in Jabesh Gilead, and you're, you're thinking, like, you're king, but it's just Judah. Like, what about all the other tribes? It's just not that impressive. It, you're saying you're king, but one tribe? So it's much like how people are invited into the kingdom of God, that you and I, we are ambassadors of Christ. We're diplomats, and we're, we're sharing the gospel for people to align with God, to have an alliance with God that this kingdom that we're presenting, it doesn't always seem that impressive on the surface. And there are so many other things that pull them away from our unimpressive kingdom that appears to be like a mustard seed. It just pulls them in different ways because that looks more impressive out there. What you're telling me about, I can't even see it. I don't recognize this. Now, sometimes people have these really powerful experiences with the Holy Spirit, and their conversion story is, is a really dramatic one. But many times, it's, it's not that dramatic. And there are these various ways people are drawn into the kingdom of God, sometimes dramatic, in that their life was literally plucked out of a life of addiction where they were going to die. And other times it's just because they were attracted to it and, and, and not all that dramatic. It's that friends invited them to a youth group and then they started going to the church and they found community there and they just kind of grew from that time and it wasn't anything all that dramatic. And we have people of all different ways that have come into the kingdom of God, but usually it's not because people are looking for religion. I, I just haven't found someone that's like, you know, I've just been looking for religion and I just found this. It's not because people are looking for Christian morals, right? Like, I just wanted to be a moral, more moral person, so that's why I started. It's usually something deeper, usually something deeper, something like Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, where Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And things like religion don't give people rest. It's quite the opposite, actually. It's, it's not that easy. That burden is not light. Yet Jesus gives us rest, that his yoke is easy, and he tells us to take it and, and to learn from him because he's, he's gentle, he's, he's lowly in heart, and your soul will find rest in him, that his burden is light, that Jesus is not like Nahash the Ammonite, who is threatening and overbearing and saying, I'm going to pluck your right eye out. He's not like the Philistines who are harsh and domineering and I'm going to put you pinned on that wall to let your body rot and let everybody see. And David is appealing to them to join him, knowing that he fights against the Philistines, knowing that David doesn't approach them like Nahash with a threat. Rather, David blesses them. Now, sometimes, again, conversion to Christ is dramatic, and other times it's, it's realizing what we've already been blessed with. I have this really close friend of mine. He, he was in my wedding party, and we talk often. We spoke this last Friday. He, he's not a believer, and we've been friends since high school. But every time I speak with him, he tells me, I'm closer. I, I'm closer. Just, I'm, I'm almost there. I'm closer. But I've, I've heard this for decades, though, by the way. But this last time we spoke, he was sharing with me how blessed he is, and he's never said these things. And that it can only be God. And he's thinking about this time of COVID where he owned his own business and he essentially lost it because he couldn't do business. But then he was provided for with this job. And this job is paying him fairly well and he has a little bit of financial security for his family now and, and it, how it just kind of landed on his lap. And that his wife is a believer and his closest friends are believers and that we keep praying for him and he's said in the past stop praying for me but now he's sharing how blessed he is with this great boss who's also a believer and is looking out for him and providing him opportunities for growth and opening these doors for him to kind of expand in the future not just at his company but if he leaves that he has more opportunities and so he's sharing with me how blessed he is with all of this, and how blessed he is with his family, that he's blessed. See, Jesus is giving him rest for his soul. Because I remember talking to him when he was so stressed about how he was going to make ends meet and wondering if he was going to be able to make his mortgage and how he's going to pay his health insurance and all these different things. That Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light, and I do continue to pray for him. Now, some of you we're attracted to Christ for one reason or another, and most of the time, it's because of the tenderness of Christ. He's so gentle, and he's blessing us over time. Or maybe God's reaching out to you when times are very harsh towards you, and it's not that God is harsh towards you, but these circumstances, things that are happening to you, are so harsh, and then you realize from that just how broken you are. Either way, you know, there is finding rest for your soul in Jesus. So, so we've seen how God's kingdom works in these 
unobvious, unimpressive ways, we see how Jesus provides rest for our souls. Now we're going to look at verses 8 through 11 here. And it reads, But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years, but the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now, obviously, Abner and Ishbosheth didn't die in battle. But with Jonathan and Saul dead, this commander of the army, Abner, is really the guy in power. Ishbosheth is really just this figurehead who is in the lineage of the king, but the power is actually with Abner. Abner makes Ishbosheth king of the northern tribes of Israel. Well, well, all of this is just a facade. It's all fake. And we know this because of where it took place, Mahanaim. Now, Mahanaim, if you're just kind of thinking geographically, is about 10 miles east of the Jordan River, which is away from Israel, which is west of the Jordan River. And this geography tells us a lot about what's happening. Because it's not like David's crowning, which started in Hebron, which was the main city of Judah, and it's a holy city where the patriarchs and the matriarchs are buried, and there's a significance in Judaism in regards to this and in the kingship. Abner and Ishbosheth's story is nothing like this. Abner takes Ishbosheth to Mahanaim because the Philistines occupy all of Jerusalem and the main parts of Israel in the west. The Philistines control the trade routes, all the arteries in Israel. And so these northern tribes have been cut off from these middle tribes of Israel, and, and none of them could establish this base of power without attracting the Philistines. So there, there's nowhere west of the Jordan River for these tribes of Israel to go and to regroup and to kind of show like, hey, we're powerful, and, and look at Ishbosheth has, has all these kingdoms, and he's, he's the true king. So they go east. It's a sign of weakness to go to Mahanaim. Because there's no significance there at all to crown this prince a king. So he's being crowned at Mahanaim, and all this is just done in vain. It's a meaningless exercise. So in verse 9, where it's written that Ishbosheth was made king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Benjamin, all that Israel, it's a pointless thing that's happening because it's simply not true. The Philistines control all of it. So what does Abner, why does he do this? Why is Abner doing this? Because he's rejecting David as king. He refuses to accept David as king, and he is defiant against crowning David as king. Well, doesn't Abner know that God has anointed David king? He does. Abner knows this. How? 2 Samuel chapter 3, starting verse 9. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. He knows. He knows David's the anointed one. He knows David's God's chosen one. It's just that 
Abner will not submit to the kingship of David. And he's looking to make himself great under this guise that Ishbosheth is the king, but really he's the guy pulling all the strings. He knows that he has no claim to the throne, so the closest thing that he can do to getting that power and to the throne is he's just going to take it and use this puppet there, and actually he's pulling all the strings. So he is willfully rebelling against God's design. Any of this sound familiar? Because we all do this today. Because you'd think that if people just knew the will of God, that they would just follow it. They don't. We know that there are things that we should do and shouldn't do, but we don't do it. And we know beyond a doubt, all the statistics are there, all the studies are there, and we know that if we exercise and we eat well, we live longer. How many of us really do that? And everyone in the United States knows that smoking is not good for your health. Everybody. There's no way that you cannot know this. Everyone knows this. But yet there are close to 31 million adults in the U.S. who still smoke. 31 million. And that's adults. That's not including minors under 18. We know that this is the leading cause of preventable disease, disability, and death, and yet close to a half million deaths happen every year because of it. That about 20%, one in five people die in the U.S. in smoking-related diseases or issues. But we still smoke. We still do it. And people just say, you know, if we just educate people about not smoking, they won't do it anymore. If we just let them know. Man, that thing's on every box. Every box. How can you not know? Every time you pull a cigarette out, it's right there. Every time you go to a health clinic, they tell you. You're interested in not smoking? You're interested in cessation of tobacco? Like, you have all the education in the world. Whenever you apply for life insurance, that question is always there. And then you know you pay way more if you smoke. People still do it, even though they know. They know. Just like Abner, he knew. He still rebels. Many people know that sin separates you from God. There are many people that you and I know that used to confess being a Christian and they know what sin is. And there are many people today who confess that they are Christians today who know what sin is, but they still practice it or they deny what sin is even though they don't practice it themselves and they just kind of support the sin that's going on out there. But knowing doesn't make any difference to those people. They still practice it or they still accept it. And if this is the case... That relationship that they have with God is a futile one. It's a meaningless one. It's just like Abner installing Ishbosheth as king of Israel. It's fake. It's untrue. But there are people like Abner. There will always be people like Abner until the return of the king from his hiddenness, Jesus. See, we're irrational 
when it comes to rebellion, when it comes to sin. We've always been this way. People do things they know are going to kill them, whether it's drugs or or alcohol or gluttony or sexual immorality. We still do it. We still do it even though we know. And it's irrational. We still practice. We still support things we know are sin, just like Abner. He knows what God's will is. He knows how God designed things, but he still rejects it. He still rebels against it. And so Abner is just another type of antichrist. Someone who will not submit to God's chosen king. Someone who is determined to self-rule or to rule others, but that no one is going to rule me. Now this isn't specific to Abner because Abner actually shares the same ancestors that we have. Genesis chapter 3 starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And since that time, we've been rebellious against God with the same thing ever since. That you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now this idea of knowing doesn't mean that we're growing in knowledge or obtaining knowledge. This is talking about choosing. The serpent is saying you'd be like God in in choosing and determining good and evil for yourself. That you decide what is good and what is evil. Just like God does. You can be your own God. You don't need God for that. That you can control what is good and what is evil. That you rule. That you are the king. See, that's the original sin that we've never been able to get rid of, that this is it, that it still follows us, that it followed Abner, and it's still with us today, that Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, is our nature. That's in us, that we've inherited that, just as Abner did, and we did, and to be outside of the kingdom, you don't have to be an atheist, or immoral, or a criminal, or any other type of degenerate. All you have to say to be outside of the kingdom of God is to admit that you are not going to submit to the rule of God. That's all you have to do. That I rule. I'm the king of my own domain. That I will not submit to God's appointed king. Jesus, the son of David, no way. Not my king. And so Abner has a lot of clones. Some of them are in the church who refuse to submit to the king. That I determine for myself what is good and evil, that God does not determine that for me. And it goes back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. Let me close with these verses from 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 3. 
For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us through your word how we can be like Abner so easily. Lord, may we not forget the small, humble beginnings of our king, of many of our lives, and not to overlook what you are doing in our life. Thank you for your patience and your long-suffering with us, and we ask, Lord, that your grace continue to flow throughout our church. Help us to see things clearly in, in where we are trying to determine for ourselves what is good and what is evil. And have us be sensitive to your spirit and how your Holy Spirit is directing us. Not to self-rule, but to submit to your rule. Lord, we thank you for your word and how you show us that you give us rest for our souls. We thank you, God, that you extend to us this gentleness and tenderness. And we pray that we do the same to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll move into a time of communion. And uh, if you need communion elements, just hold up your hand and we can get that over to you. The wafer symbolizing the body of Christ broken for us. Ask that we would take a time to be reflective at this moment and really question whether Jesus Christ is our king. Or are we struggling with that Genesis chapter 3 verse 5 where we are choosing what we believe is good and what we believe is evil rather than having the word of God and God directing us. If there's a conflict there, there's nothing wrong with you holding off and trying to get that sorted out with God before taking communion. But if you do submit to Christ as king, then let's take this together. the fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ shed for us. We take this in remembrance of Christ until his return. Lord Jesus, we um, await your return. We await to have that mustard seed fully bloom and for the world to recognize your kingdom we see it as your children and we desire lord for you to rule in jesus name amen